This podcast is called The Resilient Journey. We take real-life events and use them to learn how we can be more resilient. Today, we're going back to Boston, to the marathon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 50 as the Resilience Think Tank presents the Resilient Journey podcast. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and this week I'm joined by former FBI analyst John Petrozelli, who was an intelligence analyst leading the team in the forensic investigation of the Boston Marathon bombing. Listen as John and I talk about his investigation into the digital lives of the terrorists as we identify seven key crisis management takeaways that you can use in your program, including the importance of building relationships before the crisis and why you need to challenge your assumptions. We'll get into it after we hear this from Lisa. Hi, I'm Lisa Jones, co-founder of the Resilience Think Tank. We're committed to ensuring diverse voices are included in making communities and organizations more resilient. We are spotlighting the next generation of resilience professionals. We will share videos, blog posts, and conduct interviews with rising stars in our profession. Also, we will discuss this topic at DRJ Fall 2022 and on the Resilient Journey podcast. Want to be part of the conversation? Tag us on LinkedIn or Twitter with the hashtag Resilience Think Tank. You can also contact us at resiliencethinktank.com. John, welcome to the podcast. Uh, I was looking back through your profile and you've had quite a career and you're not an old guy. So take a minute here and summarize the, the career for the listeners. All right. Well, thanks a lot for having me, Mark. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, so I started my career in 1998. I was a commissioned as a lieutenant in the Air Force and became an Air Force intelligence officer. Um, in the four years I was in the Air Force, I was stationed in Korea for 13 months and uh, worked with C-17 uh, transport planes as an intelligence officer supporting missions, all kinds of things from supporting the war in Afghanistan to recovering the aircrew and the uh, airplane from the EP-3 that was shot down in China, um, or at least you know collided with and crashed in uh, Hainan Island, China, um, and all kinds of different missions that the um, the U.S. government uh, labeled you know necessary for the C-17 to do. Um, after I got out of the military, I joined the FBI about a year and a half later in 2004. Started working in Connecticut uh, in the New Haven Division and worked the whole manner of crimes as an intelligence analyst. So it's not a special agent. It's a support position um, called intelligence analyst and worked all manner of crimes to include you know terrorism, counterintelligence, cyber, uh, violent crime, gangs, public corruption, you name it, I worked it. Uh, and then I, I became a supervisor for all of our criminal programs, moved up to Boston, and again, supervised people who, who supported those types of investigations. Uh, the majority of my career uh, was heavily criminal. Um, there was a two-year stint where I very deeply got into you know, terrorism with the Boston Marathon bombing, um, and, and that was you know, what we're going to discuss today. So I... Uh, I spent two years from 2013 to 2015 heavily involved in the investigation and all manners of it. Um, and then lastly, uh, in my FBI career, I, uh, I moved away from the intelligence analyst side to our chief security officer uh, and then left last year, retired as our uh, chief operating officer for the Boston region. And now I'm working for a managed services provider, initially called TCG Network Services, uh, now called Magna5. And we're going to wrap up uh, the podcast 
with you talking a little bit about Magna Five. Um, but I do want to go back to your role in the Boston Marathon bombing investigation. And before I do that, and we hear this all the time, um, but thank you for your service, not just for the military side of it, though, but on the the law enforcement, the FBI side. And, you know, we need people like you. So uh, thank you on both counts. Um, all right. So the Boston Marathon happened in uh, 2013. And you were a member of FB- the FBI's forensic team on that. Talk a little bit about what your role was on that. Sure. So at the time, I was actually a criminal um, supervisory intelligence analyst. So I actually managed criminal analysts and staff operations specialists who, who worked criminal cases. Um, but I, I was part of our unified command post, and my, my job was as a day shift intelligence supervisor for any command post we had running. So in this case, I got pulled into um, to the investigation um, because it was part of a contingency role that I played um, for there. And of course, working criminal stuff, it had a ton of exposure with command posts and setting them up, coordinating them, things like that. So they, that really helped me with the crisis management side of, of the FBI. And so I was typically involved in, in any command post we had running. All right, so so let's go through the the timeline of the bombing, and it's interesting because we're talking to a cybersecurity expert. Uh, the Boston Marathon bombing was obviously not a cyber crime, and and you're going to talk a little bit about uh, that in some of your answers as we go forward. But let's go through the timeline. So the the bombing occurred on April fifteenth. The right. suspects were captured on the nineteenth, and then. The FBI questioning began on the 20th. In your role, when did you get involved? And when they told you that you were active on this particular case, what was the first thing you looked for? So that's a great question. Uh, we um, Actually, I, I was involved from the moment it happened. Um, well, actually, about, about five to ten minutes from the moment it happened. So it, it occurred about 2.49, 2.50 on April 15th. Mm. Uh, as the, the majority of the professional runners had already crossed, this was now, you know, the um, the runners who, you know, were tip, the, the typical participant in the Boston Marathon. So now you're dealing with people who, you know, have been running for hours and their families are, are over at the finish line or elsewhere. Um, and actually, we were... Uh, we were actually attending a um, Holocaust remembrance event as a as an FBI team. So um, the reason I say that is we were using the room uh, for this Holocaust remembrance event as a as a conference room with about 200 people in it, um, mm. which would eventually become our command post about an hour later. So <laughs> we have this room filled with you know um, 200 people. We're listening to a professor from a local university, and and I'm actually watching. Um, the crisis management coordinator, the terrorism supervisor, all the people I work with routinely get up and kind of run out of the room. Mm -hmm. And so as I start to see the evidence response team take off, I know there's an issue and um, it's just a matter of time before they, they cancel, you know, the event that we're in right now. Sure enough, the assistant special agent in charge comes back in, looks at the group and says, um, Hey, any questions? And looks at us like, don't ask questions. So, um, so we uh, 
we, we jumped as soon as the, the professor left, uh, we jumped into action, turned that room into a command post where we spent the next four or five days uh, permanently, you know, fixed to um, computers and desks and uh, whiteboards trying to hunt down these the, the suspects. So the manhunt began essentially about 2.51. Um, and it was a 24-7 event. We had, uh, you know, agents, analysts, um, local, state, federal law enforcement, everybody jumping in to support um, the investigation. And where, where I was involved with that is, you know, trying to basically be the day shift, but we ended up working 20-hour days. Right. Um, so the, the main role that we had was vetting the potential subjects of the investigation. So, of course, you know, what we're trying to look for first is, okay, where, how many blasts were there? Where were they? Are there subsequent bombs? And, and you know, from a terrorism side, you're always looking for the follow-on bombs. Um, you're always looking for any follow-on attacks. Like, were these people armed? Are these suicide bombers? In this case, they were homicide bombers, mm -hmm. which is somewhat atypical of what we had been dealing with as a nation. So um, a lot to go through and digest in the first few minutes. So that's interesting. I'm going to interrupt you there and, and feel free to continue. But I, I just want to make it what I think is an interesting point is that your first response wasn't necessarily to identify the bombers. It was you were in defensive mode at that point, trying to identify whether there was um, more, whether there were more bombs, whether there were going to be uh, additional follow on attacks. That's interesting. Something I never considered. Sure. Yeah. That, I mean, it's a big part of it because, you know, the, the main mission of the FBI was to protect the American people and uphold the constitution. So we had to protect the American people. And of course, the first thing with that is, are there more bombs? You know, is this over? Is there more coming? And, are, you know, again, are the, are the bombers part of the crime scene now or are they mm -hmm. moving? Are they moving targets? Now we saw video footage uh, of backpacks being dropped off and so forth. And I'm being intentional about not mentioning names of the subjects involved here. I don't, you know, they don't deserve any additional attention in that regard, but we saw that footage. That must've been similar footage to what you were looking through at that, at that same time. Um, sure. It, uh, we, we had obviously much more uh, depth and breadth of footage. Uh, that we that we were given um, a lot of what we were using was closed circuit camera TVs from local businesses and um, uh, you know institutions around there um, that was collected by Boston police who was absolutely amazing in this investigation and the state police who again were right alongside us the whole time uh, Boston police already had you know, they did a ton of community policing. And part of that was building the relationships before a crisis happens. So they had, um, they already had contact lists of everybody in the crime scene, which was, you know, uh, initially a 15 block crime scene. So they could reach out to those businesses and the points of contact there to say, hey, do you have any cameras along this route? If so, we need to capture your video. And I learned from the the July 7th bombings in London that we really only have 24 hours to, you know, sometimes as much as 24 hours, sometimes sooner to capture that video before it's rewritten um, with the way cameras typically worked at that time. 
Now, let me fast forward here just a little bit in the timeline, because there was a three and a half, four day gap before uh, the subjects were apprehended. So you started going through their digital lives and you said you went through and I I was shocked at the number of of objects that you went through here. Mm -hmm. So 33,000 emails, 120,000 photos and 12,000 videos as part of the investigation. So first of all, talk about, you know, how you even digest that amount of material to go through. And then also talk a little bit about, well, where was all of this? Was it on a laptop? Was it in the cloud? Like talk a little bit about what that was like. Sure. Yeah. It it actually became a lessons learned for the FBI and the FBI changed the way that they're able to collect information right now about this, because when, when this first happened, uh, the FBI set up a 800 tips line. Boston police already also had a tips line. And then the FBI had the info at boston.fbi account. Um, what we didn't know was at the time, the account had a mailbox size limit of 100 megabytes. So oh. that actually shut down almost right away. And so people were sending us pictures off of their phones. Like this was a, a major investigation where human um, you know, crowdsourcing was kind of the first big crowdsourcing events. So we were getting people sending us emails to the FBI inbox with, you know, megabytes full of pictures. And so every one of those emails that we had to investigate, um, we actually were using Outlook at the time to to just try to sift through uh, with about a team of 20 people um, trying to sift through each email um, to look at them as individual tips. Uh, Later on, uh, you know, a few, a few days later, we ended up, um, imaging the Outlook files. Um, They're, I think, .pst files. So we're able to image the archives and then forensically go through those with a forensic forensic imaging software to make sure we didn't miss anything. Um, But initially, it was literally people looking at the the FBI Boston inbox um, through Outlook, which was incredibly painful and painstaking. Um, And then that was, but that was actually how we found the first major significant breakthrough tip. Now we have um, established up front sort of the ground rules of the, of the interview and and the questions. And you told me that no question is off limits. Um, Well, we've established where the limits are. Let's say it that way. So if I ask you something here, that's off the cuff and, and it's not uh, you know, you're not able to answer it, we'll we'll understand. But um, so you were talking about the forensic work. What were you, what were you using? Was it like facial recognition was it trying to detect bomb uh, components? Like, w- what were you initially looking for in that? Um, well, that's a great question, actually. Uh, facial recognition technology completely failed us in the investigation. <laughs> there was no facial recognition technology that was good enough to do what we needed at the time. Oh, there's, wow. there's way better, you know, facial recognition technology out there now. But in 2013, th- the initial photo we had of the we call him White Hat, but uh, that was one of the two brothers. Um, the mm. initial vi- the initial photo we had of him was somewhat grainy, and it was a side shot. So uh, no facial recognition technology at the time was able to, to replicate that face and give us any kind of matches. So we were literally doing a human eye, you know, hey, does this person look like him? Does this person look like him thing? As we would try to vet out different subjects or potential subjects, we'd pull their DMV photos or some photos they had on social media and try to figure out if they were a one-to-one match. 
Um, so uh, a lot of the technology we were using, once we determined who the, the, the bomber was, um, we actually went to cell phones as well, started looking at cell phone calls around that time. Okay. And in, a, in that two-minute window, there were about 680,000 or six, between 600 and 800,000 phone calls wow. uh, in that area. So we had to, um, to narrow that down. And, um, and that, was, that was one of the investigative uh, methods we were taking at the time. Now, you also got the subjects, laptops and things like that, and you were doing some investigation on that? Yes, but that, so that was after um, the first, the White Hat was in custody. So after he was in custody, then um, we were able to, you know, conduct the normal routine investigations using search warrants, consent searches, um, looking at the, the, the two targets of the investigation, and then their family members, their associates. So basically, we were, we were looking at concentric circles, you know, overlapping each other. So we're looking at the family, we're looking at associates, and then we're looking at second, third tier friends. Um, and through consent searches or search warrants, we pulled a bunch, about 60 different types of media in, and then had to, to look at all that, that forensic, uh, had to look at it all forensically. You mentioned <clears throat> sort of the first tip that you got, the, the first useful tip that you got. I'd, I'd like to know what that was, and I'd like to know what some of your aha moments were, where you're like, okay, we're really on the right track here. Sure, and, and that was it. So we we essentially um, we had a state police. There was a state police trooper running the marathon, and uh, as the I th I don't recall whether it was Monday night or Tuesday night, but at some point in the investigation early on, that person's family emailed in a photo to our to our group and said hey you really need to look at this photo um and the photo actually had the backpack sitting on the ground mm -hmm. because one of the people in prior photos ended up shifting their body so their their body was now like perpendicular instead of parallel to the bomber and so we when they shifted their body in that photo we actually could see the backpack as it was seated on the ground and so that allowed us to then go back to the forum video, which was the restaurant where um, White Hat you know, exploded his ordinance and um, we're able to trace him back now. After seeing that video, you know, a hundred times or thousands of times with all the people watching it, we couldn't actually find him with the human eye. But once we were able to get that photo, once someone pointed that out to us and we saw it, then it became clear as day, you know, who the bomber was. And, and that's what started our track on white hat and then we started backtracking with all that closed circuit video to then start to find what the other person we would call as black hat and then as we fast forward uh, into the questioning phase and you're starting now to dig through their digital lives uh in some cases there are files pictures emails whatever sitting there in plain sight um on a laptop in other cases i guess you might have to retrieve them maybe they attempted to delete them yes so um uh, White had actually, um, while he he had been shot, and while he was um, on a you know on a, a foot chase, um, essentially he smashed his two. He had two iPhones with him. He smashed them both, and he was just lucky. He smashed them in a way where we couldn't recover any data from those two iPhones, so they were mm -hmm. dead to us, okay. which would you know would have been critical pieces of evidence. So we ended up um, using his laptop. Um, and on the laptop, when he had connected his iPhone, it would do a mobile sync backup. 
So we were able to recover his mobile sync backup from about two months prior. And that was essentially the last timestamp we have or the last, the last data we had from his phone. So we were missing about two months of time um, from the time from the bombing about you know, two months back on his phones. But you obviously had enough in there to, to put pieces together. And it, it kind of leads me to a question that I want to ask about deleted files. And, and that is, are they really deleted or can you pretty much get into almost anything? So um, what I wouldn't want to do is give somebody who is up to no good the way to get around, you know, deleted files and stuff. That's fair. I would say that there are ways to be able to, as much as possible, delete and keep those files deleted on your computers and stuff like that. Um, however, unless you do it almost perfectly, you know, forensic tools can recover the vast, vast majority of stuff on a on a hard drive. Um, so it, there's um, a couple of different instances. I had just mentioned how White Hat had smashed his phones, but he had synced his phones with uh, with his computer. Mm-hmm. That you know, there are ways that investigators can try to get around those limitations. Um, Black Hat actually traveled overseas, and um, by the way, the reason I'm using White Hat and Black Hat is to fall in line with what you were saying as far as yeah. not identifying the bombers. Yeah. Um, but um, but Black Hat had actually traveled overseas to Russia before the bombing, and he actually used um, TrueCrypt, uh, which was an old uh, file encryption system to encrypt a hard drive on his laptop that he brought with him to Russia as a way of getting around Russian FSB searches. Yep. And so, um, so we had to, we had to crack that one. Now the, the limitation for him at the time, he didn't realize it, but TrueCrypt had already been cracked at that time. Mm-hmm. The, um, the, the, the owners of TrueCrypt, I think had released the, the, um, code for it or the algorithm for it. And so, so we were able to get into his TrueCrypt drive. Um, relatively easily, but you know, you, you, I'm sure you've seen subsequent uh, years and subsequent investigations like San Bernardino, where the FBI director was in a fight with um, Apple to be able to right. get into iPhones and stuff. So, um, you know that 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 balance of trying to protect the the public's privacy, individuals' privacy, versus like needing to get into these devices in a crisis, um, you know, is is always going to be existing there. So as you're going through all of these objects and, and, and doing your investigation, what surprised you the most? What caught you off guard as you went through the emails and the photos and, and the videos? Uh, there, there are two things um, when I saw you were going to ask this question that, that came to mind for me. One was uh, the diligence of our employees in the FBI. Um, and for those that don't know, I mean, the FBI has taken its beatings over the last seven or eight years, but there's a lot of people on the front lines that are good people that, that want to do the right thing. And, um, you know, these are people that I pulled together. I had to pull, pull a team of people together in six weeks to go through those 33,000 emails, 120,000 photos, and 12,000 videos. And we had to ascertain in each video, photo, and email, you know, we had to essentially tag each one to say, is a victim in here? are the, the two bombers in there or is one bomber in there? So we had to go through this for discovery purposes to be able to give the defense everything we had on um, the white hat and to give him a fair trial. So this was, this was actually more of a discovery process. Um, but, you know, 
the reason I'm talking about that is our people had to go through a mentally exhausting and emotionally difficult review of all of this graphic uh, photography and videos of people being essentially, you know, blown apart and, and recovering post-blast. Um, and, th and that was really traumatizing for our people. And so, you know, I had never been exposed to that level of trauma. Um, I think few people ever had been. And so, right. you know, we had to really focus on taking care of our people and making sure that they had access to professionals who could help them to work through those things. Another thing that I learned from this was don't overwatch something. You know, if you've seen what you need to, to get out of, you know, get out of that, what you need for an investigation, don't keep watching a video that you don't need to keep watching because that can, that can throw in, you know, potential PTSD or, or other elements to your psyche um, that, you know, you can try to avoid by minimizing how much exposure you have to it. Um, the, the other thing I, what surprised me was the public's willingness to send us pictures of things that were already on TV. So on a lighter note, we would constantly be getting tips from people that were taking pictures of CNN or Fox or any other news source and saying, Hey, I think this is the guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's like, uh, okay, thank you. You know, we had a lot of Twitter analysis um, and other things where people were, I think on Reddit, we're talking about a, a missing student that looked like the bomber. Um, and it turned out that that was a Brown University student who ended up, um, you know, he, I don't know if he committed suicide or overdose or whatever, but he was missing for a period of time. And, and the Twitterverse or the Redditverse had basically said, this is the subject. And it wasn't. Um, unfortunately, he was found, you know, dead, uh, like, you know, I think a week or two later after that. So, uh, um, you know, those are definitely some surprising things um, that I saw in the, in the investigation I would never have expected before. I think you answered my next question already, but we'll go through it because we talk about your work in, in the FBI and obviously with a team of highly professional people, but the key word there is people. You're human too. So personally, was that trauma the hardest thing for you to deal with or, or what was the hardest thing uh, for, you, for you to navigate through? Um, that was really hard, you know, managing people through the, through the manhunt keeping, keeping morale high. Um, I had some time, you know, when, when officer Collier was killed by the bombers on Thursday night, um, uh, the 19th or sorry, the 18th, um, you know, we had FBI employees who blamed themselves for not finding these two fast enough, you know? Wow. And, um, so that was difficult. You know, I had to explain to them, you didn't kill him. You know, these two killed him. Like those, right. you know, those are really, really people who were professionals who took this very seriously. And so there was, there was managing the team was, that was a part of it. And of course I was one of, you know, 40 different managers. So we all went through our own problems with that. Um, but then there was also uh, the loss of my own personal life for two years. You know, I became a ghost in my house. Even if I was physically there, I was constantly thinking about the investigation, you know, Hey, did I think of this? Did I do that? Could I have done this better? What could I, what can I do? in the investigation now. So, you know, I, I basically lived inside of the bombers family's lives for two years, trying to put together the, the radicalization process and things like that. So, um, so that was tough personally because, you know, it took me away from my family either, either physically or uh, emotionally for, for a period of time. And once again, I say thank you for, for what you did. 
I wrote down seven things that I took away that can be applied to any crisis that we go through. And I'm going to share those with you. Um, and I'll give you a chance to, to maybe comment, pick out one or two things here at the end and, and tell me what you think about this. For the listeners who say, okay, this is a, you know, a podcast about resilience and we're talking about a bombing. Okay, so here's where we tie it together. Here are the seven things that we can learn from the Boston Marathon bombing. The first thing is build relationships before the crisis. It will help the overall response effort uh, immensely. The second thing is to challenge your assumptions. You learned about email size being a limitation that no drill or exercise would have ever uh, you know, pointed out. So it's good to challenge those uh, assumptions uh, ahead of time. The third thing is you talked about the facial recognition and so forth. Sometimes the tools that you plan on using in a crisis are going to fail or they're not going to work exactly like you think they will. You have to be able to adapt as you go forward. The fourth thing that I learned from you today is that discovery happens. We mentioned at the top, this was not a cyber crime. Um, but there was cyber forensic work that was done. You can plan on that digital discovery happening. The fifth thing is the reality of trauma in a crisis for those who are managing it and going through it. And we have to uh, give our teams the support that they need from an emotional and from a mental health standpoint. Number six is you're going to have to filter unhelpful information misinformation, or just a, a whole bunch of irrelevant data uh, that comes in. Uh, and the last thing is that a crisis like this can be, and very well may, may be, all-consuming. And again, that goes back to that mental health. Uh, I thought there were seven really interesting takeaways. Well, what are your thoughts, John? No, I, I that's amazing how you could surmise it. You're a great listener <laughs> listening to me and going through what, what I pieced together for you. But um, it's true. I mean, one of the my favorite phrases was we used human solutions to technical limitations. And, mm -hmm. and that the flexibility was all about, you know, the people in the FBI at the time and the state police and, and Boston police. We constantly were working around technical limitations, regardless of whether it's a computer or DVR or whatever we were dealing with. So there are always going to be technical limitations and the humans are what make the solutions work. So, um, you know, that that's definitely something that um, I want to mention because you were right, like that it, it was, it was crucial. And your other six, your other six takeaways, I, I completely, I completely agree with all of them. That's pretty cool. Now you've changed streams here a little bit, right? You've, uh, you've moved away from, military and law enforcement and so forth. And now you're with an organization called Magna Five. Talk a little bit about Magna Five and what you're doing over there. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, so Magna Five acquired TCG network services back in March of this year. And um, you know, with, when there's an acquisition, you never know how that's going to go, but the, the company has been phenomenal with us. We, um, they kept all of the team, and in fact, they they basically pulled our strengths into their strengths. And so now we have you know, a really strong managed services and security provider. We're about 150 or 160 employees strong. We cover uh, from Ohio down to the Carolinas, 
um, and, and up north to, you know, Massachusetts uh, and the Northeast. Um, so we're a really large, very flexible managed security and services provider. We have a very good cybersecurity stack that we've merged between both companies. John, I'll get you out of here on this. How can people connect with you? Uh, so feel free to reach out to me um, on LinkedIn if you want, uh, John Petrozelli, P-E-T-R-O-Z-Z-E-L-L-I. Um, you can also find me at um, magna5global.com or um, jpetrozelli at magna5global.com. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm happy to reach out or happy to talk to anybody who reaches out. John, thank you for this. That was fascinating. Thanks for reliving it, for walking us through it, and for giving us those seven takeaways. Man, I appreciate you. Thank you for being here. Thanks a lot, Mark. I want to thank John Petrozelli from Magna5 for joining me this week. It's interesting to look back on something like the Boston Marathon bombing and find ways to apply lessons learned to our own programs. Thanks, as always, to the Resilience Think Tank for sponsoring the Resilient Journey podcast. Stay in touch with the Think Tank at resiliencethinktank.com. Please share our work with younger professionals as we work to strengthen the future of the industry. We have another excellent guest lined up for next week. So join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.